Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Tom Moran here from Tom's Big Spider. So for those of you that follow my Facebook page, which I'm not very active on, full disclosure, but I do use for things like this, or who are over on YouTube, I posted up a question. This is something I thought about for quite some time. I came up with this idea. Actually, I didn't come up with this idea. Somebody emailed me a while back and said, what are some of the slings that people seem to struggle with? You know, we all know which ones are hardier. We all know which ones are popular, the beginner species, all that stuff. But are there particular species of spiders that people seem to have more of a difficult time raising up from slings? And at the time, I'm like, interesting idea, but how could we do anything with the data for that? And we'll get into, as we get into the podcast, I'll get into the issues we have with the data. But I do, after giving it some thought and having more people ask me that over the course of the years, like, oh, so what are some of the things people have a hard time with? I think there's a couple right off the bat that anybody that has been in the hobby for any length of time or done any reading know have a reputation for being difficult to raise to adulthood. And trust me, when we get into this, it's going to be no shock, some of the ones that appear on this list. But I did, after a while, start to think it would be kind of cool to look at this stuff because I know there are some ones I've had a hard time with over the years. And I know that other people, every once in a while, you'll talk to keepers. And we all have those species that seem to, they gave us trouble. And a lot of us, you know, I've, I've spoken to people that have been keeping for many, 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 many years. And they, everybody seems to have that one species that's like, you know what, I've raised everything, but this one... Oh, gave me a hard time. So I do think that it's interesting to kind of visit that and look at what are some of the species that gave us a hard time. And not only that, but maybe break down where are the issues happening? Why are people having a hard time with these? Plus, what I was kind of hoping would happen when I posted this up is it would open up a dialogue for some folks to be like, oh, I was really successful with these guys. I raised you know a bunch up to adulthood. Here are some things I learned or what happens in some cases, people talk to breeders or people that have raised them that give them some tips that they try out and it works for them and then we get that information out there so maybe in some case we'll be able to go all right you know what now we see what the problem is now we see where some of the problem areas are here are some tips to keeping these particular species and to ensure that they go from little tiny slings to big beautiful adults now on the flip side of this what I was worried about was that we wouldn't get a lot of people responding because we're kind of we're afraid to talk about deaths in the hobby. And I think part of it is because you put out there, you lost a species. And if it's a species that people deem to be an easier species, you can get jumped on. I was worried that posting this stuff up, it would encourage those people that like to go on and go, wait a minute, I don't understand how you lost that one. Those are easy to come on and do their thing. It's funny because yesterday I attended a virtual meeting of the Invertebrate Club of Southern California. Shout out to those guys and gals. Josiah, thanks for inviting me. And we had a wonderful discussion. And one of the folks, and I'm sorry I took notes when I went through this, but they were incomplete, but somebody brought up the point, and I agreed completely that in the hobby, we are afraid to talk about deaths. Nobody wants to mention they lost one because they're afraid they're going to get jumped on. Now, if you're on Facebook groups and message boards, sometimes you can't deny the fact that there are issues out there where people will go on, and they'll be like, oh, today I lost this. Today I lost that. Today I lost this one. And those are the ones that kind of, I think, try people's patience because you start realizing there's an issue, not with the spiders there, but maybe with the keeper, but we should not be afraid to be able to reach out and go, hey, I lost a spider. 
has anybody seen this before? And one of the things we talked about yesterday during that meeting was the fact that because of my unique position with being able to do the social media stuff and having a lot of people email and comment on videos and comment about podcasts, I get to get information from so many people. I, I never feel like an island over here with the keeping. I've had things happen in my collection I've seen and gone, man, that's really weird. I wonder if anybody else has seen that. And the good news is usually after talking to people, I find out one way or another. And usually I do find out other people have experienced the same thing. So it kind of gives us more data, more information to, you know, I don't know if we solve all the problems, but it definitely gives us more information to look at and try to come up with solutions for the problems. So with this one, what I did was I basically put out there, let me know which species you had problems with. And I think in the most cases, people that I had to take all the data, make a list of all the species, basically tally it up. And it sounds like in most cases, people got the idea of this, which was which ones have you tried and really like you've lost more than one or you've kept it multiple times. I think some people went on and were very, they were great about it. They're like, hey, I lost this species, but it was early on when I was in the hobby and that was, it was my fault. I didn't know what I was doing. So that's good. And I do think this is tough because we're all going to have different species we lost and it doesn't necessarily mean it's a difficult species to keep. So what I really wanted to do is get as many people to chime in on this as possible so we could see, are there any trends with certain species? And I had a few in mind before I did this and I kind of wrote them down and started you know, over the years, just talking to people, there are certain ones that stand out that everybody seems to struggle with. And yes, those all, they were, well, actually all but one, one was a lot lower than I thought it was going to be, but I do think it's because not as many people keep it. Other ones right on the money. Like if, if you had asked me to say the top three, I think I pretty much nailed. If you had asked me to say top four, I got three of the four. One of them I don't keep and haven't kept, but I was kind of surprised to find out people struggle with. There were other ones on the list that it was like, wow, I did not know people had a hard time with those. And it became apparent because what would happen is somebody would put it on there and go, oh, okay. And then another person would do it and another person would mention it. And you started to see those numbers kind of go up. So there were some trends to look at. Now, obviously, this is not, I want to make this very, very clear. This is not a scientific study by any stretch of the imagination. Did we get some good data? Yes, I do think we did. Do we have some numbers that do show some interesting trends? Absolutely. But there's too many variables we can't account for. We can't account for the fact that some of these species are more prevalent in the hobby than others. If you take a species like, say, the C. cyanial pubicins, you're talking about a species that is constantly selling out through vendors. Lots of people keep them. So you're probably going, just by the law of, the, law of averages, going to have more deaths with that particular species because more people are keeping them. You'd have to look at how many people had them total and then figure out how many people have lost them to figure out the percentage overall mortality rate. And that's probably going to be pretty impossible to do. So we have to keep that in mind that some of the ones that do appear on this are more popular than some of the ones that may not have gotten as many mentions. We also have to keep in mind the aforementioned keeper negligence or keeper error. There were many cases, not a ton, but cases where people would say, I lost these, but I realize now it's because I did this, this, and this. I lost this because I tried it too early. I didn't know what I was doing. So that doesn't necessarily mean the species is more difficult to keep. However, on the flip side of that, you could argue that this person has probably kept other species, had no problems with them. So it does kind of point to one of them being more hardy than the other, which could mean that other species causes people a little more problems. And I do think that's something that we need to look at in as far as analyzing the data. All right, yep, it, this person probably wasn't ready for it, but why wasn't the person ready for it? Was it because the person was doing something that was so terrible it killed the spider? Was it because the spider was less tolerant of or had a smaller band of parameters that it could be kept in to thrive? 
another thing to keep in mind when doing this is again the how long the species have been in the hobby. I do believe that a lot of these spiders, when they first come into the hobby, are obviously produced by wild caught adults. You get your first, sometimes they are wild caught sacks. They find sacks, it drives me nuts, but you find sacks in the wild. They gather them and then they divide up the slings and they sell them to people. So you're essentially getting wild animals. We're talking full blown wild animals in your home. And I do believe with some of those species, they are a little more finicky. I think if we look back to some of the species we've kept over the years when they first come into the hobby, you'll all often see people going, how do you keep these things? I can't keep them. I'm doing exactly what I read that they experience in the wild. It's not working. I do think that the band for some of these guys, that band of acceptable care as far as temperatures, humidity, whatever the conditions you keep them in is a little narrower than when they've been in the hobby for a while. And they've been captive bred. They've been kept in these temperatures. They've been kept in people's homes, not in the wild, and bred over and over and over again, had multi-generations. I do believe, and obviously this isn't scientifically proven, so the folks out there that you know are like, well, this isn't scientific, I know that, but I think we can, if we look at the information, it seems like after these animals have been in the hobby for quite some time, and we've got good captive breeding programs of them, and we get a lot of captive breeding slings, and then we breed those captive breeding slings, they seem to become much more hardy and tolerant of being kept the way we keep them. I mean, I think a Theraphosa species, when those first became, you know, for years, a lot of them obviously were wild caught, and I think that was a big problem. Again, the wild ones pulled right out of the wild. Yeah, you're pulling them out of an environment they've lived in and thrived in, and now we've completely changed everything and put them in our collections. We're trying to emulate that. I do think there's a problem with that, but I think the reason why people have had better luck with the Sturmy has always been pretty good. The Blondie, I've heard a lot more people raising Blondies with no issue whatsoever now. When back in the day, it was like they were dropping left and right. I do think part of that's because they've been raised in the hobby for so long that they're starting to adapt to it. Just a thought, a theory, not proven. Want to make that very, very clear. But th- things like that you have to take into consideration when you analyze data like this. That, and that's one of the reasons why this isn't scientific because we can't answer a lot of these questions. We can't go back and go, all right, how long has this species been in the hobby? Do, has it adapted enough? That's a really tough one. So what I kind of did with this is in the spreadsheet, I kind of made a green list, a yellow list, and then a red list. The green list is doesn't necessarily mean good. It just means it's the ones that got enough mentions that there is something there that we should look at, that there is enough people brought it up, enough people had issues with this species, or in some case, a genus of tarantulas, that it warrants a little look, it warrants a mention on this list. This would be kind of like, I guess, honorable mentions, but I don't want to use the word honorable when we're talking about sling mortalities, but it's ones that just we should take a look at. And the first one that popped up that I found very interesting, and I do have some thoughts. And the other thing we do when we go through these lists, we're going to try to pull out some reasons why people might struggle with them. And I do have some ideas for some. I have to say, for one, I have nothing because I haven't raised it. I have no plans to raise it. And we'll get into that in a bit. Maybe that could be something people chime in on and we talk about the next podcast. And I will be doing a video for this, although after looking at the data and after kind of coming up with writing, I don't, I don't really have a script, I have a page of notes here, but looking at how I wanted to approach this topic, it's one that kind of needs discussion. I'm a little afraid to just kick out a 20-minute or a half-hour video out there without being able to really break down some of the things we're going to talk about in this video, uh, this podcast, so we'll see how that goes. I definitely want to do a video version of it, but it may end up me just posting the podcast for people to listen to because I don't know if I can do it justice in that abbreviated time. So again, the first one that popped up and I first was surprised. And then the more I thought about even my own keeping, not so surprised. The genus of Fauna Pelma. 
we had quite a few Afonapelma species pop up, and we had a couple people that just said flat out, I struggle with Afonapelma. So Acalcotas showed up, Acimani showed up, Afonapelma species Diamondback showed up, which I was glad to hear because I actually had one that I lost earlier this year that I was kind of shocked it was doing great, and then it wasn't doing great, and that one really kind of, every once in a while you lose one, and it's like, what the heck happened here? So that one was interesting to hear that. Afonapelma moderatum, we had quite a few people that mentioned the moderatum. Afonapelma paloma. So just a few Afonapelma species. I think one of the problems, and this happened to me, I mentioned a while ago, I had Afonapelma annex that I got as a sling. And it, this was very, very early on in my keeping career when I wasn't really looking at the big picture for a lot of things. So a lot of times you'll hear species are desert species, they're arid species, and people immediately think, oh, you can't have any moisture whatsoever. And I actually had a few people chime in that they thought that people lost the Fonapelma species because they're arid species, you have to keep them bone dry. And I totally disagree with that. After speaking with people that live in areas where they have a Fonapelma species, a lot of these guys experience rainfall. A lot of them live in burrows where they go down under where they do have access to moisture. I've shared the story before of my Afonapelma annex that I picked up as a sling and I put it into an enclosure. It was a little dram vial. I gave it a little starter burrow. I kept it pretty much bone dried, moist in a little corner, let it dry up, moist in a little corner, let it dry up. And this thing just sat on the top. It didn't eat. It didn't do anything. It wasted away and it died. And I was so upset. I'm like, oh, I must've got a bad sling. Picked up another one, was excited to try to grow this one up. Same thing happened. And then one day I took a little pipette and I dribbled some water into that starter burrow I'd given it and moistened down that lower level of substrate. Came back the next day. It had dug all the way down to the bottom, dropped in a prey item. It ate immediately a marked improvement from the one I had kept bone dry. And at that point, I realized the error that I had committed. Sure, they probably live in areas where it's quite dry, but they always have the opportunity to burrow, find moisture underneath things. And then having spoken to people who live in areas where these spiders are, they say, oh no, we get rain. I mean, obviously some of them can be found in very, very dry regions. I know somebody's going to come out and go, no, no, no. But the point is they do, a lot of them have access to moisture. So I don't know. I find that I do make sure that mine have the lower lower levels of substrate moist. I have several species of Afonapelma, and I've found that they will burrow down to find that moisture. I think it's important to give them that dry area. I think it's important to give them a gradation of, you know, moist at the bottom, dry up top, so they can pick which level they need to be at. But I'm looking over at a bunch of mine right now, and they all burrow down to get that moist substrate. So that's my thought. This is one of those, and there's a couple on the list that I think are those species that people hear arid and immediately go, I'm going to keep them bone dry, and that's not not necessarily what's right for the spider. So interesting to see that those popped up. Next one that popped up on the green list was Cosmos. We had the Alagans. We had the Perez Miles. <laughs> I love when people get on me for not pronouncing the Latin names correctly. And then you come up to something like this that is obviously not <laughs> particularly Latin. Perez Malesi. It looks like it's Perez Miles with an I in the end. Anyway, we had quite a few people mention just Cosmos as a general, as a genus that they've struggled with. We have uh, several for Alagans, only one for Perez Malesi, but enough to warrant the fact that we should take a look at that. Now, unfortunately, I don't believe I've ever kept any of these guys. The nice thing is, going through this, I realize now I started making kind of a list of ones that I have to keep because I haven't touched the genus. And remember, my goal is to eventually hit 
all the genera out there at some point or try to keep at least one species from every genera out there. But I have not kept any of these. So maybe someone can chime in on where they think people are going wrong with those. I can't really come up with anything on that one. I'm not going to talk if I don't know what I'm talking about. So, but that was interesting for me. And that immediately made me want to keep these guys to see what the deal is. So that was one genus that was mentioned. This next one surprised me. And again, I should probably, I was supposed to cover this in the beginning. I should probably mention the fact that one of the reasons I was afraid people would want to put this stuff up there is because people were going to give them a hard time. Because we knew when I talk about this ability, I go, you know, people are going to put spiders up there that are bulletproof. And I'm afraid people are going to jump on them and be like, how do you kill these? They're almost unkillable. And I was hoping that wouldn't happen. We had a couple people come up and flex and it drove me nuts because it wasn't, oh, I'm surprised you struggle with that. How did you keep them? Whatever. It was more like, how the heck did you kill those off? We had somebody that came on with the versicolors and it kind of was like, all right. That was not what we were trying to do here. But the G Polkropies was one of the ones that popped up quite a few times. I was kind of surprised at because mine were bulletproof. I thought they were bulletproof. But then I started thinking about it. I'm like, no, no, I could see how these could be a problem. I mean, my first two gave me fits. I think I told the story before many times how they hibernate. They were eating and then they disappeared, buried themselves during the heart of winter in my house. I didn't see them for I think it was like five months and I was completely convinced that convinced that they were dead. I was dropping little roaches in the roaches would stay in there. They would run around. Nothing would come up, eat the roaches. It just, I was convinced they were dead. They popped up. They hadn't even molted. They were still the same exact size, started eating again, like five or six months later, and then did the same thing the next year. So I could see how people could struggle with these. We got quite a few votes for it, not over the top enough to kind of be like, Oh, I wasn't expecting that one to get mentioned. I think with the G poker piece, Part of it is the fact that A, it's a beginner species, so it means a lot of people are grabbing these that have zero experience keeping spiders, and B, they're very popular. I think a lot of people keep them. So again, I think we have to look at that. What Sure, it got a bunch of votes, but compared to how many of them are actually out there and how many people are successfully keeping them, I'm sure it's a minuscule percentage the amount of them that don't make it to adulthood or the juvenile stage. So that was just, I thought that was interesting. I will throw this one in there because there were a couple mentions of this one as well. As far as the ones most of us in the hobby consider to be bulletproof, the Lazy Adora Parahibana got mentioned a few times. Again, same thing. How many LPs are out there? I think everybody's got an LP in in their collection. I think a lot of us have more than one LP in the collection because we got some for freebies or whatnot. I think in the grand scheme of things, sure, there's going to be a couple people that struggle with them. They do burrow. I had a couple people specifically mention that I should do something on burrowing spiders because they were shocked to find out that these guys burrowed like they do, which I wanted to point out. Then apparently you're not watching my videos or listening to my information because I tried to point out that that was one species that I had that did a lot of burrowing. But I get it. It's one of those ones people get them and they maybe even read about it. Yeah, it's going to burrow. It happened with me. I read they were going to burrow. Mine burrowed. And I'm like, oh, God, are they dead? I totally get it. So that was the LP was another one that is one of those species that most of us consider to be very, very hardy, great beginner species. But some people are going to lose just because of the fact that there's so many of them out there. Now, moving away from some of the quote unquote beginner species, one of the ones I was really kind of curious to see if anybody had issues with were the Pisolotheria, the genus Pisolotheria. I was kind of wondering if there were any issues there because after posting my molt video about my Pisolotheria subfusca that recently molted for the third time and definitely improved. I had quite a few folks come on and say they'd struggled a bit with keeping certain Pisolotheria species, but honestly, not many mentioned. Ornata was mentioned once. Regalis was mentioned once. The only one that was mentioned multiple times was the Pisolotheria metallica. Now, a couple thoughts on this one. Number one, I will say, out of all the Pisolotheria species I've kept, 
My P. Metallica was one of the most finicky and slow-growing of the bunch. It was shy. It wouldn't take larger prey items. It was one of the few spiders I've ever kept that didn't eat for several weeks and then ate again. It was weird. And I've heard of other people that have had the same issue, that they didn't quite grow as fast. They were a little more shy than their other pokies. They were a little more finicky with the eating. Now, the ones I kept communally ate like, most of them ate like beasts. There are two of them I'm looking at. Right over here next to me, the two little quote-unquote runts that I had that are still much, much smaller than the other ones that are basically full-blown adults now. Those, the majority of the ones in that communal did very, very well. But usually the P. metallic, in my experience, and with some other people, is a little more slow-growing. So that could account for some of the deaths uh, the other thing is, I think if you look at all the Pisolotheria species, I'm going to go out on a limb and say the P. metallica sells much better than any other Pisolotheria species on the market, by bar none. It's a blue spider. It's maintained its popularity over at least the last decade as far as one that everybody wants to keep and is enamored with. Every time I talk to new keepers that are just doing their you know exploration of the hobby and doing their research, there's always mention of, oh, I can't wait to work up to a P. metallica. So again, I do think this one can be chalked up to the fact that there are a lot of them kept and therefore you're going to have a lot more overall issues with them when compared to other spiders that maybe aren't kept as often and now we come to our last entry on the green list or the one that's just like hey let's take a look at it. There enough people mentioned that we should talk about it we have genus salmapius although we can kind of narrow it down to three species came up out of salmapius and two of them had more votes than any of the other ones Salmapius cambridgei came up quite a bit with people having multiple deaths of cambridgei slings. And then we had Salmapius ermenia. Several more people mentioned ermenia than cambridgei. But the weird part was with the cambridgei, there were several people that came forward and said they had lost multiple slings. It wasn't just one or two. Somebody, I believe, lost four slings. And then ermenia. And then Salmapius victori came up a couple times as well. So that was interesting because I've overall found Salmapius to be very, very hardy spiders. But again, I wonder if this can be attributed to the fact that they are also commonly kept. I mean, Armenia is one of the more popular spiders out there, if I'm not mistaken. A lot of folks see that black and orange and want to get in on that. So I'm sure there are many folks out there that buy these spiders, and therefore you can have more folks that have an issue with them, have an unexplained death. It could be a bad sling. It could be a number of different things. Cambridgei are, it, I've kept several Cambridgei. I have five, four Forslings right now. Four, well, now they're juveniles. They're growing like weeds. They're tough as nails. However, again, there's a lot of them out there. So that's going to be more deaths and probably natural deaths. So again, I just thought it was interesting. They are one that I have seen with Salmapia species. This is one of the ones like Formictopus, like with some of the Lampropelma, the Omothymus, the species, the ones that do some burrowing as slings. I've seen many setups over the course of the years where people are like, hey, I just picked up Salmapius Armenia. I don't get it. My spider isn't settled down. It's all scrunched up in the top cord. And they sent me a picture and they gave it the quintessential arboreal setup with just very little substrate, nothing really to hide behind, a little piece of cork bark. And I have to explain, listen, these guys are going to do some webbing and burrowing behind the cork bark to start off. A lot of them do some burrowing early on. A lot of the arboreal species, especially the Asian arboreal species, but Salmapius as well, do burrowing earlier on. And that kind of throws people off. And I think they give them enclosures that don't allow them to properly set in. So I could see some issues happening there, especially if somebody's relatively new to the hobby. I know a lot of folks jump right into the Salmapius 
early on because they like the looks of them, they like arboreal species, or they're trying to work their way up to some of the more difficult and venomous and faster old world species. So I think a lot of folks jump in them early on. But those are a couple things I can think of off the bat. I have seen many setups that are completely wrong with these guys over the years, and that can definitely attribute to this. I could see a spider not settling in, not eating correctly, and then which then leads the keeper to scramble, start messing with their husbandry, and you end up with doing stuff to the spider that's actually making the situation worse for it. So that would be my thought there. So it's this point that I realized I lied. We do have one more on the list. I just failed to highlight it when I went through my spreadsheet. The spreadsheets just make my brain hurt. There was one that popped up that was kind of shocked at, but then again, when I thought about it, Billy and I were taking our walk and we're talking over some of the ones that were on the list that were kind of, because she was kind of monitoring the Facebook list as well. And we're talking about some of the ones that popped up and I was like, really? And then this one made perfect sense when we thought about it and talked it out. It would be the Chromatopelma Cayenio pubicens showed up quite a bit. And it makes sense because I would say if it's got, it has to be, it has to be one of the most popular species across the hobby. These guys sell out constantly. People, vendors are always getting them in, hundreds of them selling out. They're very popular because they're one of the few very colorful new world species that beginners are attracted to and that sometimes make it to the beginner list. They're generally very, very hardy, easy to keep spiders with no moisture requirements. But quite a few people came on and said that they had struggled with them and lost mold, in a couple cases, lost multiple specimens. Now, in a couple, I could tell you right off the bat, it was because they kept them too moist. They, one of them said flat out, I kept them like I would keep the, every sling you read that slings need moisture. I read that sling, all slings need moisture. So I kept them on moist substrate, kept the substrate moist. It was dead in a couple weeks. And we had talked about many times in the past how when they first came out, people were keeping them moist. They were dropping like flies. They do not need moist substrate. The other thing is, I think maybe some folks kept them a little too dry. Again, you hear the arid stuff. You hear the spider is an arid species. It doesn't mean you need to keep, in most cases, bone dry. Even my little G. rosea slings and G. porteri slings will drink. So I think what ends up happening is people put them in the, they get the little slings in, they put them in these bone dry enclosures and never add any water whatsoever. And that wasn't what I did with mine. I always kept the little corner moist and I would also dribble some water on the webbing before I went to bed. And I had caught them drinking off the webbing before. So I'm thinking that could be an issue. And then again, it, there was a decent amount. It was mentioned a decent number of times, but I, again, I would say compared to the number of these slings that are sold probably daily across the world, it was a minuscule percentage of the overall one sold because these so these could honestly just be sick or slings sick slings or slings that just weren't meant to make it. So I have to mention it and I want to mention it because I thought it was interesting that it popped up, but I do think it's something that it's on all the spiders on this well, all the spiders except for one that we're gonna to get to in a bit. I would say this is probably one of the most popular ones to keep as a pet. So it would make sense that there were a little a few more deaths than some of the other species on the list. So now we are moving into the yellow portion of our program, the yellow portion. The yellow, the ones that made it onto the yellow list are the ones that was definitely, it's ones that I've heard people having trouble with over the years as well. And that's one of the things I couldn't completely ignore that I've, you know, worked with people for quite a while and many different keepers for quite a while on how to keep these things. And there are certain ones that pop up quite a bit that people are having a hard time with. So it kind of 
it jived with what I've been seeing, although there is definitely one on it that I was kind of shocked to see on it. I thought they were pretty hardy. But again, this is fun for me too. I, I want people to understand. I'm not, I wasn't sitting back with this one going, ha ha, of course, that's exactly what I was expecting. I was interested because I, I see things on my end and there were definitely species on my end that I know for a fact people struggle with, but it was neat to hear from other people, a lot of other people all at once and have all this data like right in front of me. So the first one that popped up was the one that I was honestly, the first one came up like, oh, that's interesting. But then after that first one, it kept coming up and I was actually a little surprised when one of the ones when I was walking with Billy, I talked about, I was like, wow, I, I didn't know. The Nandu chromatis uh, was one of the ones that was mentioned quite a few times by people that just had trouble with them and they were not able to thrive in their care. And I find that interesting. Like, I, I don't know if it's because people are, people are keeping them too dry. Maybe I do think there's an issue out there where people read that something needs moisture and they overdo it. I think overdoing moisture is obviously, well, I think at this point we can recognize is obviously just as bad as keeping them too dry in some situations. I'm not sure about that one. I mean, I've raised two of them. My first one, the, the one I have now, the female, first one was I had a mature male. And then I had my female who was that weirdo that would eat the heads off of crickets and then bury the bodies. It was the weirdest thing I've ever seen a spider do. It was borderline creepy. I came in one day and there were a bunch of gnats in her container, like the, fl the little flies. I'm like, oh no, she must have died. It's like when you, sometimes when something dies and you get the flies in there and you open up and I open up and she's sitting there. She looks okay. All right. And then I noticed the flies were all congregating around this one corner and I go to the corner and it's kind of, you can tell there was, there'd been some digging there and I took a paintbrush and I cleaned away some of the dirt and I found a half eaten cricket and then I found another half eaten cricket and then I realized they weren't half eaten. She'd eaten the heads off of them and deposited three of them there and they were all in various stages of decomposition weirdest thing ever now she grew out of it and she just eats everything now but she's a crazy girl love her to death always wanted an end chromatis and I didn't have that was about it she was a weird spider so I guess if other people have experienced this kind of stuff maybe that's what it is I don't know I have really no, nothing to I, I can only speculate that maybe people are keeping them too dry or maybe they're a little finicky as uh, small slings. I'm not sure on that one, but it was interesting to see that one pop up and enough times that it warranted the yellow band. The next one came up. I have heard of people having a hard time with mostly because they, they deal in extremes with the species. They hear that either it has to be kept super wet or I've heard other people hear that it can be kept really dry. I'm talking about the P. Sazme. I've raised a couple of these up. I have two big, beautiful females. Uh, it also has a distinction of being the only spider I have ever lost. And that was the one that I put into an enclosure that I didn't realize had an opening underneath the hinge and the spider disappeared. And it took me forever to figure out what had happened because I'm a dingus, but I hate that distinction with it because I was so upset when I lost this one. But I think P-Sazme, the only thing I can think of with these guys is they come from a place where they have extreme flooding and then they have drier periods. And I'm wondering if people just go again over the top with keeping them super moist or maybe they read, I've had some people approach me and go, yeah, I've heard this is an arid species. No, not necessarily an arid species. I find with the Sazme, it's definitely one that likes to burrow when it's a sling. And I think it's definitely one that makes it very easy for you to give it a setup where you give it a little extra substrate and make sure those bottom levels stay moist. Top levels allow them to dry out and the spider can pick where it's going. So that's the only thing I can think of with that one is 
when you have a spider that lives in a place that gets those extreme conditions, we have droughts, we have flooding to the point where they have to close up their burrows. I think people, if they're reading that information, struggle with which one of those to follow. So I think finding that happy medium really helps with these guys. So I'm thinking that's probably it, but who knows? It popped up quite a bit on here. And again, information to me, and it kind of gives me something to think about now the next time somebody comes up to me and says, hey, I got a piece of Sosme. This is something we could talk about, or at least if it shows up on this list, this is something that people can realize, and this is what I'm hoping will come out of this. I don't want people going, oh, I'm never going to keep a piece of Osme. It came up on Tom's list in the yellow. No, 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 no. That's not what this is about. This is not, we don't really have enough information to really make that type of declaration that this is a difficult species to keep. Well, we have a couple on here. We probably can, but... In this case, it would be more make sure you really do your homework. We A lot of us skirt that where we, we read something, we go, peace, Osme, we look something up, and go, oh, yeah, they say keep it like this and we're good. This might be one you want to talk to a couple keepers that have had success with it and find out what they did. You want to go a little bit above and beyond what you would normally do when researching your care for species. So that's I'll reiterate this at the end of the podcast when we kind of bring it all together, but that's where we want to go with this list. This is not something intended to scare people off from keeping certain spiders. So moving on from our Enchromatis to our P. Sosme, we have, we're going to kind of just cover the genus of this one. There were a few mentions of each member of this genus. I was actually expecting, I have to say pleasantly surprised, I was actually expecting these guys to show up on the red list. Fully, when I made my list in my head of spider, that like I, I had a top four in my head of the ones I thought were going to be the ones that most people had trouble with. I kind of just grouped these three together. I just looked at the genus and go, this one's going to be riddled with people having a hard time. But it's not. Enough mentions to make the yellow list, but not enough mentions considering the reputation they have and how many people are probably out there keeping them now to warrant the red list. We're talking about Theraphosa species. We had a, a few mentions of each species, Apothesis. We had Blondie. We had Sturmy. Sturmy actually had the most mentions of the three, which was kind of surprising until you consider the fact that Sturmy's been the one that's been in the hobby, or at least established in the hobby and inexpensive and easier to acquire in the hobby for the longest. So when you look at that, it makes perfect sense because the Blondie were out of a lot of people's price range and weren't readily available for quite a few years. Same thing, Apothesis until recent years were very difficult to come by. And when you found them, they were super expensive. But a few mentions each, and I I think again it's that moisture dependency that trips people up i think moisture dependency can get people both ways there are people that don't recognize what moisture dependency is and keep them too dry i also think what probably kills more of these are people that overdo it with the moisture i can't tell you how many people will email me with pictures of sopping wet tarantula enclosures and go am i keeping this moist enough and when i try to explain to them you want the top to dry out about a bit they freak out like oh no that's how i tell when the top starts drying out i pour more water in it and then i have to explain nope the trick is to give them nice deep substrate allow those bottom several inches to remain moist allow the top to dry up and that way again they can go down into a burrow like they would in the wild experience those that higher humidity level that they may crave it keeps everything nice you know keeps the book lungs adequately moist it keeps them from dehydrating but they can also come up and get away from it if it's too much 
a lot of people struggle with that. And I think with the moisture dependency species in particular, that probably kills more than anything. I think the overcare, and we'll get to that again at the end when we kind of sum this up, overcare is a real thing. People that overdo it with this stuff. So I do think that most people are feeling a little more comfortable. They're recognizing how fast, how well they eat, how fast they grow, how quickly they put on size, and how overall they're very hardy spiders. And I do think that nowadays, and again, I mentioned this earlier, that because they've been established in the hobby for a while, people are successfully breeding them. We're getting a lot more captive bred slings in the hobby. I do think they have become, I hate to use the word evolved, but they've become more hardy and able to thrive in a wider band of conditions. So Therophosa, definitely ones you need. I do believe you should have some experience before approaching a Therophosa species, not just A for the moisture requirements, B, they're super big. And I have had people that have picked one up, it hits that eight, nine inch mark. And they're like, man, you're not kidding. This thing's intimidating. And the hairs can be quite nasty. That's something that needs to be kept in mind. So if you're, you don't have your rehousings down or, you know, you're one of those people that's super sensitive to hairs, that's something to think about. But overall, it was good to see that they didn't get all that many votes. So now we come to the fun part of our program. I don't know if it's fun part, but the part everybody's probably been waiting for. What are the ones that really popped up all over the place? And I will, one Surprised me only until I really kind of thought about it for a minute. It was one of those ones like, oh, and then it was like, oh, yeah, of course. But I didn't have a lot of experience. I had no experience with it, so I wasn't able to come to my own conclusions about it. And then I'm going to go out on a limb and say one and two, everybody could guess right now. So have your one and two in your head. You probably know what it's going to be. And then number four on the list was one that I was fully expecting to be on here and felt very vindicated when it showed up on here because over the years I've had a lot of people express that they struggle with. So the first one on the red list, and guys, this one's going to stink for those of you that are eyeing them. They're, they're expensive as heck right now. They are more readily available in the States than they have been. It is the T. Celadonia. When the first one was mentioned on here, I'm like, oh, well, that's good to know. And then it came up and it came up and it kept coming up and it came up many, many, many times during the course of this list. A lot of folks struggling with keeping these. Now, unfortunately, this is not a species I currently keep and I don't really have plans to keep it. To be completely honest, if those of you remember several years ago, there was a seizure of an import of it and it caused such a disaster in the hobby. It just, I, I think I have PTSD, like almost PTSD surrounding it. Like even when I hear the name, it's like, oh my God, because it just, for me, it exposed a lot of rifts in the hobby. We had vendors fighting. We had YouTubers going back and forth. We had different groups on Facebook that were battling. It just, the whole thing was just ridiculous and embarrassing, quite frankly. And it's one of those spiders that there was so much that came out of this and so much drama and stress behind the scenes that sadly it's just I hear the name and I don't want to keep. So I want to explain that because I know there's I get contacted all the time by people. I've been offered them so many times over the last couple of years. I just it's one that I don't have any intention of keeping anytime soon because and I know some folks are probably gonna be like, what, really? Trust me, you don't know the stuff that went on behind the scenes with that, that it was just, it was so infuriating. Plus, it kind of showed me that if something really bad goes down in the hobby, we don't coalesce, we kind of turn against each other. So, bad experience, but enough of that. I'm sorry for my aside, but I this is one I do feel like I have to explain why I haven't gotten any of these, because again, 
A lot of folks are struggling with them. I have a lot of people that will say, hey, I just got this. Could you please do a husbandry video on it? I need to know how to keep them. And I just don't have any intent. Maybe it'll change as time goes on and it wears away. But for the time being, I just have no intention of getting them. So I would talk to people that do have experience with them out there that have had success with them. But it sounds like they are a trapdoor spider. One of the things that was mentioned by several people that when they're smaller, because they're trapdoor spiders, they're teeny tiny and it's hard getting the prey items to them. I had three people say that they thought they're starved to death because although they had done their trap doors, they weren't getting the little, I think they were using fruit flies that were going in there. The fruit flies weren't getting up to them. They weren't getting the fruit flies. It sounds like they are tricky to keep, but again, without personal experience, I can't comment on this all that much. So if somebody does have success with them, if somebody does have experience with them, please let me know and I will be happy to share that experience. But again, I have nothing to add with it, but it did kind of, I know they've been coming much more popular for a while. Everybody was afraid to sell them in the United States. We're afraid to have them cross state lines. So people were kind of selling them within their own state or you're getting these quiet little sales that nobody was talking about. And now it seems like they're out there and it seems to be okay to sell them and people are starting to sell them more and more. And I hear a lot more people picking them up. So this could be a situation in which it's a new spider that people are unsure of the care on. A lot more people are picking them up now. So we're hearing about a lot more deaths, but it does sound like they're a little trickier to keep as evidenced by them not only appearing on this list in the number that they did, but also by how many emails and messages I get from people asking me, how do I keep these things? I keep losing them. So T. Celadonia, again, we talked about this list. It means if you want to get one, they are flipping gorgeous spiders. Billy saw a picture of one the other day. It's like, these things are amazing. Like they are, they really are gorgeous spiders, but it means you really need to have your husbandry in check. And you really want to make sure you talk to somebody who's had repeated success with them before you go ahead. Obviously some people have had a lot of success with them because they're breeding them. They're raising them up. They're breeding them, which is a good sign, but you want to talk to those people and find out what are they doing that makes them successful? What are they doing? What are their tricks that allow them to keep the species alive? So T. Celadonia, Way up there on the red list. Next one, I was expecting to be on the list. And the thing is, when I started thinking about it, they kind of the only thing that surprised me is how many times it was mentioned because I don't know if this is a super popular species, but the Heteroscodra maculata, the HMAC, showed up quite a few times, more than the T. Celadonia, but the numbers were close. And HMAC's been around a lot longer. So that shows you in a few years, these numbers may be quite different. They may be at different places on the list. I've heard a lot of issues over the years about HMAC. And I will tell you the first two that I got, I almost probably killed mine because I, like many people read, they come from an arid region. I thought, oh, arid spider, they don't need a lot of moisture. And I dropped my slings in these little 32 ounce deli cups with some substrate with, you know, the little cork bark hide kind of set up arboreally and pretty dry and let things dry out. And then I read something somewhere where people said they were having a hard time with it. And somebody came on and said, that's because everybody keeps them too dry. These are species that you want to give them enough moisture, but not too much moisture, because if you create a too moist of environment, they die that way. So it seems like with the HMAC, there is a, again, a narrower band of what they will tolerate in terms of humidity in those enclosures. So it sounds like you almost have to treat it like a certain other arboreal species that's going to pop up on the list in a minute and make sure you give it a little moisture. Well, you're going to give it a little more moisture than you maybe would this other species, but it needs good ventilation. It's And that's what I ended up doing with mine. I ended up moistening down the substrate and I ended up rehousing one because I didn't feel like I had enough holes going around the enclosure. And then after that, they were completely fine. They did, again, 
sand. They do a little bit of burrowing behind stuff, kind of like the aforementioned Salmopia species or even Pisolotheria. As slings, they will do a little burrowing. They'll go behind the cork bark. They'll web it up. They'll dig a little dirt. They'll make some dirt curtains. They'll hide. And then as they get older, you'll tend to catch them sitting out more in the open. But if they're disturbed, they go back to their burrows. Both of mine tend to actually stay uh, on the ground behind the cork bark where they've webbed all up. Although one of them actually has a den inside a cork bark round that she sometimes uses. It depends. So I do think with the HMAC, the trick is don't keep them too dry, but don't keep them too moist. So when you don't want it too dry and you don't want it too moist, the trick is ventilation. If you keep the bottom bottom levels of the substrate moist you keep the top levels allowed to dry out a little bit and make sure that you have that good airflow it won't get too stagnant and they should be fine but that is a species that was one of the ones in I had in my mind when I thought about this list that I was sure was going to pop up and I was glad that it did because it kind of confirmed what I've been hearing from keepers for quite some time so H. maculata mentioned many times mentioned a lot of the people that mentioned it also said that they had tried to keep multiple specimens alive and struggled to do so so that's usually a good indicator and i think a lot of the ones that showed up on the red list were ones i should mention with the t celadoni as well people had had multiple deaths either you know two same uh, two from the same sack that they had purchased both died or two out of three or they had bought one it died bought another one it died so these are the ones that you want to definitely make sure your care is on point for because obviously keepers and i will say with the hmac and the t cell Adonia, compared to some of the other species that are mentioned on this list, I don't think as many people keep them. So those numbers, the percentage of mortality compared to how many are out there would probably be a bit higher. So for the next one on the list, we are going to, we're just going to focus on the genus. And I got a funny feeling that anybody that's been in the hobby for a while, been doing their research, as I mentioned earlier, probably could see this one coming from a mile away. We're talking about genus Avicularia. Many actually genus avicularia, just people saying avicularia in general. I've struggled with all species of avicularia, was mentioned more than T. Celadonia and HMAC put together. That's impressive and scary and kind of sad, honestly. It's something I think most of us expected. Some of the species that were mentioned more than others, avicularia, avicularia, a morph six, which would be the avicularia metallica, avicularia purpurea. Avicularia Giraldi, Avicularia Rufa all had multiple mentions, and I don't think this will come to a shock to anybody. There's been issues for years. We talk about, if you haven't heard about it, SADS, Sudden Avic Death Syndrome, where you have an avic, it's thriving, it's doing well, and then it's dead. And I, for years, have argued that I didn't say it was a myth, but I thought that it was preventable. And I've been talking about avics and another species that's going to be our number one that I'm sure everybody's already guessed for many, 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 many years. And it's sad that we're still at this point where we're killing so many of them. Personally speaking, I get probably one of the top species I get, avicularia, avicularia, for people that are freaking out because they're not eating, they're not webbing, they're all the way up in the corner. I will tell you, a lot of these can be contributed to the fact that the avicularia, avicularia, in particular, we'll concentrate on that one, makes it to a lot of beginner lists. There are a lot of people that swear by them being great beginners. And unf- and, and they're on my list. I did the one, that the top 13, I think it was, as chosen by keepers and I really didn't want to put it on the list for this reason but a lot of people chose it and said they they raised them they had no problems with it. so people do have success with them 
but I think it's one of the few true tarantulas that really have a narrow band as far as what they'll tolerate in terms of temperatures, in terms of humidity, in terms of their environment. And I think that right there precludes them from being a really good beginner species. Because if you look at it, there's still so much conflicting information. I had somebody the other day, it was I think early last week, said, hey, I want some tips. I'm keeping a Vicularia. I'm so excited, blah, 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 blah. I love all your stuff. And then they showed me a picture of some of the most sopping wet enclosures I have ever seen with not a lot of ventilation. It had ventilation, but not as much as you would need for that. I just looked at the pictures and I thought to myself, my Lord, this is never going to end. This is going to be something that 10 years from now, we're still going to be discussing how the Vicularia species are dropping like flies. And I think, unfortunately, it's a confluence of two major issues. One, they are not as hardy as other spiders. We can I know people go out there and say, oh, they're tough as shoe leather. If they were as hardy as other spiders, the LPs, the beginner species, Brocky Pelmogramistolas that barely popped up on this list, we wouldn't be having this discussion. I don't think we can argue anymore that although they can be kept and they can be kept well, I don't think we can argue that either. There are people that have a lot of success with them. They aren't as tolerant as some other species. And I think the other issue is they attract a lot of beginners that are ill-equipped to weed through this information, to make those adjustments when something is wrong, to keep these guys safe. I do think they are a little more difficult. And I'll just go on record saying it because I know this has been argued and people will keep them that the, the people that have success with them be like, oh, they're easy, they're easy. I get that you did well with them and you obviously know how to keep them, but the problem is there is so much information out there that if you deviate one way or another too far, you end up with a dead spider. So I do think avicularia are amazing species. I do think everybody should, I, I mean, they're hobby staples, the avicularia, avicularia, avicularia metallica are flipping stunning. But we can't discount the fact that, yes, a lot of them are sold. A lot of these guys are sold in the market. One of the more popular spiders in the pet trade, I would argue that. So obviously the number of mortalities are going to be high, but they shouldn't be this high. We still continue, continue to hear just as many stories about these spiders dying as other ones. And I think the problem is, is that humidity requirement that everybody reads. They need high humidity. Nobody wants to take the chance of keeping them in low humidity no matter how much they hear about it. I have kept these guys before I've told, and again, let's not discount that people living in different regions of the world are going to have different situations as far as how they need to keep them in their home. But I do live in New England where it's super humid in the summer. I would let them dry out in the summertime, keep a water dish in there. And mine did really well. I'd missed every once in a while, like twice a night, I just dribble some water on the webbing or miss the webbing a little bit before I went to bed. So they get a drink, lots of good cross ventilation and they were fine. In the wintertime, where it was super dry up here, I would keep that water dish full. I'd moisten a little, allow it to, you know, the old overflow of the water dish. I'd keep a little corner moist. And then I would just, again, good cross ventilation, mist down the webbing or put a little water on the webbing before bedtime. And the reason you do it before bedtime is because if you haven't realized when you spray or mist, that stuff evaporates very quickly, especially in the cold winter months where your heater is going. It's not going to be there for more than an hour or so. So if you hit them right before bedtime, turn the lights off, that's a lot of times where they come out to explore. They'll siphon that stuff right off the side of the enclosure, the webbing, just fine. But I think 
again, into, when you take into account that some people live in very humid areas. So I've had folks be like folks from the Philippines that are like, yeah, I'm moistening down the substrate, good, good cross ventilation. Well, your natural climate there a lot of times is very, very humid. So you're already dealing with a situation where it's super humid. You really need to keep some cross ventilation to maybe even get a fan in there and keep that breeze going. Because remember, what people talk about is they're up high in the trees where there's a nice breeze and it's keeping that air flowing. Even putting a, an oscillating fan in, just make sure it's not blowing directly on enclosures. Make sure you turn it off when you're doing rehousings with New World species. You're going to have hairs everywhere. But having a fan creating airflow is a really good thing. I had somebody just asked me, that's okay. I've done that many times before. As a matter of fact, I should probably get one up here now because it's getting a little stuffy. It, having that airflow is crucial. So those are some th tricks you can use, some tips you can use. But sadly, I feel like, you know, again, as long as I keep getting these emails from people that are keeping these species really, really moist. And again, I, I should mention that there will be people out there that say, listen, I kept them exactly the way everybody said we should be keeping them. We're on the dry side, good airflow. I still lost them. It makes you think. So I think in the very least, let's stop pretending like they are as hardy as some people want to make them out to be. I have raised spiders with zero issue that people have said are very finicky. That doesn't mean I go out there saying, oh, you're wrong. No, it means somehow I nailed it. And that's what it comes down to. Sometimes you just do the right thing. Your setup, your natural environment is correct. It's more conducive to that species. Whatever it may be, you did something that it worked. That doesn't mean that they're easy to keep. And I think we really need to differentiate that in the hobby. Because again, I think a lot of folks are getting beaten down sometimes over the fact that they'll post up, hey, I just got an avicular, my avicularia just died. And somebody will come on and go, they're really easy to keep. You just got to pay attention. It's not always the case. So let's concede under the right circumstances. I guess they can be good beginners if you're really doing your homework and paying attention and avoiding the static of all the stuff that's out there that says they need to be kept super humid. Make sure you have a good cross ventilation. Make sure you give them room to web. Another thing I've seen is people will put them in enclosures that won't have a lot of cover. And this is a species that I found if they don't feel comfortable, if they don't have a place they feel like they can start webbing up, kind of settle in. In most instances, then they're going to have a hard time with them eating. Just make sure you do your homework before you get them. But avicularia species, always, I don't think we're ever going to have a time where avicularia species don't show up on something like this or aren't mentioned as a species that's a little trickier to keep. And again, I think part of it's due to the fact, I think it's those two, two major issues. They're a little trickier, to, a little less tolerant of things like temperature and humidity and not having enough airflow. And I also think that unfortunately, a lot of times they're grabbed up by people that don't necessarily have that skill set or the wherewithal to keep them correctly. Now, the final species on this list and the one that got more votes than I think are the red of the red species. Let me just check. I'm going to scroll up here. Eh, just about if you added the other ones, the other red ones together, it's it's actually more than the other ones put together. The Caribbean Versicolor. Again, I think a lot of what I said about the avicularia, avicularia extends the Caribbean Versicolor. I think it's a, a species that is absolutely adored in the hobby. They are nice and fluffy. They're colorful. They're cute. A lot of people talk about the fact that theirs are very tame and handleable. My two are definitely not. Unfortunately, I also think that much like, and they used to be, remember, this used to be a Vicularia versicolor. It was in the same genus as a Vicularia. I do think this is one of those spiders that, again, is less tolerant in terms of that band of husbandry, in terms of temperature, in terms of specifically the airflow and the moisture levels. I've shared the story before that when I got my first, it was relatively, or I believe my, I believe my Caribbean versicolor female was like my 
third or fourth sling ever. And I identified this species. I wanted to keep it arboreal. I had read nothing but good things or beginners, blah, blah, blah. But I had also read in many, 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 many places that they need really high humidity. And this was going to be my first spider that was going to be a moisture-dependent species. Or back then, it wasn't moisture-dependent species. It was high humidity. This is back when I was looking at the ideal humidity requirements. Yes, guys, I fell for the same thing, did the same stuff. Anyway, I was very fortunate that I spoke to somebody who had raised and bred them, and they're like, listen, I know this is going to sound crazy, but ignore what you're hearing out there about the humidity requirements. You want to make sure that they have decent ventilation. You do not need to keep them moist. He told me he gives his a little moist patch in the corner, gives them a water dish, we'll spray the webbing, and that's about it. He doesn't let things get too moist in the enclosure. Now, as far as mine's concerned, I'm not telling anybody to emulate this perfectly but I stuck to exactly what he said and when I got these guys it was I want to say it was around October I think I got my first one and at that point winter was starting to come the weather was getting colder she was eating okay a little tiny blue sling I had kept her in one of those Jamie's enclosures the AMAC boxes that were inverted that had the little basically the little mesh screen vent in the front which again not great good not perfect cross ventilation I will freely admit that but I had the little cork bark thing glued to the back of the enclosure I had the little plastic plants a little substrate in the bottom and what I did was I kept a corner of that substrate moist I would basically come in just pour a little bit of water in the corner and I'm talking a corner it's a square enclosure I had a little water dish in there and what I would do is mist the webbing before bedtime. And that was it. And then when the winter months came, not only did my temperatures drop a little bit in there, and then keep in mind, these guys do seem to be a bit less tolerant of the colder temperatures, but the temperatures in that room on the shelf that she was on would hit 68 or so in the wintertime. It was dry as could be. We had, when our heat went on in the cold winter months, the humidity in the house, everybody had the dry skin. You could like scratch your name into your skin, no problem. Very, very, very dry, but I never over moistened the substrate moist corner water dish misted she grew just fine big beautiful female raised her up ended up pairing her breeding her had a bunch of babies i had one that was a mature male i have one that's a female immature female and they're doing fine again did not overdo it with the moisture i think the problem is and you have to take into consideration where you live as well so again if you're in a place where you have naturally high humidity you really need to tone it down as far as humidity is concerned. I've heard a lot of folks that are coming from places where it's already humid. Yeah, it's a it's super humid environment. They don't necessarily have the AC on that's drawing all the water out. And then they're moistening things down. It's a death trap for these. So definitely a species people still struggle with. I would say I, I, there was no shock to me whatsoever that this was the one that was voted the most the one they have the most trouble with, the one more people had said they've kept multiple ones and given up on because they die. I would say of all the species I'm approached with that people are having issues with, the Versicolor is top on the list. A, because they're legitimately struggling. B, because they got one and then they start panicking and freaking out. I will tell you, I can remember getting mine convinced that I was going to kill it because the way I was keeping it was totally different from everything I had read about them. The the only thing kept me going is the guy that explained it to me came from a similar climate and had success with them to the point where he'd raised many up from slings. He had bred them. He obviously knew what he was doing. So I kept falling back on this guy knows a heck of a lot more than I do. And I'm glad I did because although it killed me and there were times I'd freak out, the winter would get super dry. I'm like, should I moisten all this substrate down? Should I spray the snot out of this thing? I didn't do it, and it ended up being just fine. But I think this brings us to 
our final point in this, and one of the reasons that a lot of folks have a hard time with some of these moisture-dependent species or species that need their parameters a little more closely attended to, there is something in the hobby that we will refer to in this podcast as over-caring for them. And somebody, I believe it was, uh, I did take notes, Serenity Bliss mentioned, I believe she was talking about Caribbean versus Car. I'm, I apologize, Serenity, if this was something different. I had so many comments I went through. These were the notes I took. She put, I try too hard with them. That sums up a lot of cases for a lot of these deaths that I see, especially with folks that contact me after the fact. We try too hard. We see something that makes us think that our animal isn't thriving, and then we go into overdrive trying to improve conditions. We dig up our frostorial species. We look at our our C versicolor, and you know what? It's probably just in pre-molt, but it looks a little lethargic. Oh, no, there's not enough moisture in here. I'm going to moisten this thing way down. Oh, no, now it really is lethargic and dying. We go overboard. We tend to fixate on them, and I am guilty of this. I was guilty of this earlier in the hobby. Hopefully, I'm better at it now, but I still have my moments sometimes where I freak out and adjust something because I see you know something doesn't look quite right. I think a lot of the times when we have these deaths, especially with the slings, and this is slings in general across the board with all different species, we overdo it. Now, that's not to say we should set it and forget it for lack of a better term. Like, oh, there we go. We planted the spider. Let me just ignore it. No, no. Part of the fun of having this hobby is observing them and watching them and seeing what they do. And I think a big portion of the hobby, when there are legitimate cases where something is wrong, it's important that we're keeping an eye on them. So I think there is a happy medium, though, as far as observing, taking notes, recognizing this is normal, this is not normal, this is pre-molt behavior. This isn't a spider that's dying. I don't need to do anything to adjust this. I need to leave the darn thing alone. This might be a spider that's super lethargic. It's come out of its den. It's hanging. It's lingering around its water dish. This is a spider that something's wrong with. We need to start getting better at recognizing that. And I think it's going to be a hard thing to fix because we've all been there. As I've said, I've done it. I talked about the LP that burrowed. I had read a million times they burrow. Don't worry about it. I almost dug the thing up. I'm lucky I didn't. I talked about the Caribbean Versicolor, how I got good information on it, but I was second-guessing myself the whole time. I can't tell you guys how many times I almost went to heck with it, opened that enclosure up, poured a bunch of water in the bottom, soaked it all up, blocked up some of the ventilation and so that thing wouldn't die. And had I done that, I wouldn't be here probably doing the Thomas Big Spiders thing right now because I would have killed the spider and lost my confidence with it. I think there is an issue with keepers panicking, and then overdoing it. And I don't think there's any, take two spiders to epitomize this issue. It would be avicularia, avicularia, and Caribbean versicolor for ones where people are constantly second-guessing themselves. I'd love to hear from folks when I post this podcast up. Tell me if you've ever raised one of these and second-guess yourself. Tell me if you've ever raised one of these, because I think this is good information for people to see. Have you raised one, and was there a point where you started going, oh God, I'm keeping them too dry, and you and you really moistened it up? Was there a point where you you know freaked out and put a bunch of more ventilation in? Let us know, because I think there's a lot to be gleaned from that. I think people need to hear from other people that have struggled with these and then take the people that have been successful. If you've been successful with them, what did you do? How did you keep them? Let's create something here for folks. And that's one of the reasons I want to do this because I hate doing anything that can be construed as negative. I don't want to do a podcast that's going to have people walk away from this and go, well, I'm never going to keep a C versicolor. I'm never going to keep an H maculata. I'm not going to keep an N chromatis. Those things die too easy. That is not what this is about. This is to remind people that we need to be extra careful, extra diligent when coming up with our husbandry information. We need to make sure that we're on point. If there's a species that made it to this list, 
by all means, keep it. You should want to keep it. That's part of that's part of the fun of the hobby is the challenge of keeping new species. But make sure you're on point with your husbandry. So I would encourage folks. We'll see if we get a turnout. Maybe I'll put a separate uh, post on because I know I'm, I think what happens with the podcast is people realize I'm not the most responsive in the world of coming back and, and engaging people that comment on it. But it's not really for me. It's for people that come on and read this. What have you done to successfully keep your avicularia species? What have you done to successfully keep your carabina versicolors? Have you had those moments of you know, uncertainty where you've switched things up? Has that led to a death? Let's hear about it because I think that's really important information to get out there. Again, we don't want to talk about our deaths. And again, there is the thing, somebody referred to it as the myth of C. versicolor. I think somebody had a good positive experience with it, which is great. And then they said, well, it's a myth. And I'm not dragging anybody, but it kind of bothered me because I think a myth would be we, we reach out and Caribbean Versicolor doesn't make it to this list. This is not a myth. When you have this species named more than any other species on this list is one people have died for no reason. We have to look at the fact that guess what? In the very least, they're not as hardy as other spiders that we keep. You can't discount that. If if that were the case, if they were as hardy as some people like, like I had no problem with whatsoever. I kept them dry, whatever. That's great. You kept them correctly. I don't think there are other species out there. There are, for example, let's take the LP. Most folks find them just about bulletproof. They dry out a bit of slings. They still seem to live. They're really, really hardy spiders. You don't hear a bunch of people going, oh, I, I moistened, I, I screwed up, I moistened up my LP too much and it died. You don't hear a lot of people going, oh, my LP, I didn't have enough cross ventilation and it died. There are thousands upon thousands of LPs sold every year, probably tens of thousands of LPs sold every year, maybe even higher every year across the world and you just don't hear it about it. So we can concede, and I'm, I'm tired of the nonsense where we just pretend like they're all super easy. It's not the truth. We can concede that there are certain species of tarantulas out there that are going to have that narrower band, that we're going to need to be a little extra careful when setting them up, them up and when paying attention to their requirements as far as moisture and airflow. So that doesn't create a myth. This is not a myth. These people struggle. I'll tell you what's absolutely not a myth. People do struggle with avicularia species and Caribbean versicolor species. They struggle mightily with them. Whether it's because they the information out there isn't good, whether it's because they're not keeping them correctly is irrelevant. People continue to struggle with them. Do I think there is good care information out there that would definitely minimize the number of deaths we have? Absolutely. Do I think we're going to continue to have a lot of deaths because they're a little less tolerant and because a lot of people grabbing them aren't really as experienced as they probably should be in the hobby. Yep, I think that's going to continue to be a problem as long as they keep making those beginner species lists, which makes me partly culpable for this because, again, they appeared on mine, although I did try to add the caveat that they can be difficult. So it's I, I'm glad we did this. I do think, again, I want to remind folks, and I know it's going to be me repeating myself again, but I never want the main message lost. This was not a podcast or if I happen to turn it into the video uh, video to have people go I don't want to keep these species this is a reminder that we can't get complacent in our husbandry this is a reminder that if a species shows up on this list and you want to keep it talk to people reach out ask people what they're doing get that good information do not pull the trigger until you have done all your research and are confident in how you're going to keep the spider don't have it be one of those ones where I get the emails. It's, hey, Tom, I, I love all your stuff. Hey, I just, 
I, I got crazy and I went and I bought a Carabiner Versicolor and now I'm trying to find information on it. That's the wrong time. Now you've got the spider coming. It's the wrong time because that's going to not allow you to really dig in deep, mull over some of this stuff. When you're doing the research for these, pull that information together. Look for common threads. Put together a notebook. Write down what people are saying. Who had success? How did they keep it? And be able to mull it over for a while. Give yourself time to think about it and go through it in your head. I think when we're talking about more difficult species, when we're talking about keeping old worlds, those aren't ones you want to just make that jump by them and then do the research afterwards. You want to mull it over. You want to think about it. You want to make sure you explore all the information you can find on it and that you're comfortable and confident before getting into it. And I think we would reduce a lot of deaths if, if people would do that. Now, again, there's going to be folks out there that chime in. I did all that and I lost them. And again, I think that's why it's not a myth that these guys are tricky to keep. It's You can't ignore the number of people that struggle and lose them. So, so I don't know about you all listening. I have to say, as far as some of the things I've done, sometimes I do podcasts and it's me just relating information that I knew I love ones like this because I'm able to look at data. I'm able to get, you know, I'm able to look at, I have a spreadsheet up right in front of me right now where I'm able to look at the numbers and the color-coded stuff and really see a visual of the ones that are giving people trouble. And that fascinates me. And I think there's a lot to be gleaned from that. I think there's a lot we can pull out of it. Positive things we can pull out of it. Not one of those clickbaity top 10 most difficult slings to keep. We're not doing that stuff here. That's not what this is about. It's about looking at, legitimately looking at, as all of us who keep, what are the ones we had trouble with? What are the ones that we should be paying most, more careful attention to? And how can we remediate that? How can we fix it? How can we... I'm hoping what this turns into again is just people being more informed before they make that jump. I'm hoping some people that are out there right now with their beginner species list, they haven't bought their first spider yet, and they're looking at which spider should I keep, and they're like, I, I really want that C versicolor. In the very least, this is going to cause them to pause and maybe do a little more research, maybe put it on the back burner a bit, maybe think I should probably try a couple other things before I jump right into this. That's what it's about, making people think and making people think in a constructive way, not a way that's scaring people off. I don't, the last thing I would want to do is have people take the species, some of the species that showed up on this list and cross them off on their list. That would be an absolute shame. That would be a tragedy as far as I'm concerned. Everybody should eventually work to keep whatever species they like. That's the great part about this hobby is there's so much out there. But the other great part about this hobby is, again, there's so much out there. There are other spiders you could keep in the meantime to kind of get that experience. So hopefully that's what comes out of this. I want positive things. I want positive in the discussion. I'd really like to see some discussions in this one about some of these species in their care. If you've kept some of these species, the H. maculata, the N. chromatis, P. sozomy, Caribbean versicolor, Cosmos, especially Cosmos species because I don't have any of them, and the T. celadonia, if you've kept that, let's help folks out and get on here and go, all right, we can see that people are apparently having a hard time with these, whether they're, they're harder to keep or not, whatever it may be, people are struggling with them. What did you do? How did you keep them? And I will say, keep it educational, keep it professional, keep it polite. Don't go on and bash people. Oh, of course you lost them. You did it this way. Let's keep it polite. I don't want one of those situations where people come on. I don't understand what your problem is. I kept these guys. No problem. That's great. Uh, congratulations. Hand clap. Uh, we don't need it. That's not what this is about. It's about helping people out. So what I'd really like to happen for this, and maybe if I do a video, that could be an interesting part of the video. It's good. This, this is something I thought like, oh, I'll do a podcast on, and then maybe I'll do a video this week. If I do the video version of this, and I, I really want to do one because I think it would be important and I think it would be great information for people. It 
it would be great to be able to do some things where we talk about what other peepers, keepers have chimed in on. So it's not just me. I never want it to be just me. So please, when this comes up, let us know. Pick. If you have one of these species that you had success with, let us know what you've done. How have you kept them? Let's make this something, turn something that can seem negative on the surface. I mean, it's a list of some of the more difficult slings. Or I have to figure out a way to spin the title of this. I don't want to say spin, but create a title for this in the podcast so it doesn't sound like one of these doom and gloom lists. That's not what I want this to be. I have to find a positive way to be able to say, all right, these are the species you might have a little, the trickier species, something that people are going to come into not with immediately a negative connotation about. Wish me luck on it. <laughs> the titles of these things are the ones I struggle with because the easiest thing in the world is to do a clickbait title and I I would not be able to sleep if I did it. But that's what I'm asking you guys. That's I thank you for everybody that came forward. We had hundreds of votes. I think we're up to around 250, which was really good. Keep them coming in if you want, because obviously I'm going to do the video. If anything changes or anything else pops up, I can always add to it, which would make the video a little different from this one. And then if you've had success with these guys, don't come down on people that didn't have success. Tell us what you did. It would be great to have a little threads going of, hey, I kept Nandu Chromatis. This is what I did. I, the only reason I keep seeing Nandu Chromatis is I have my thing open here, my spreadsheet open, and someone stare me in the face. I kept Pisosme. I kept Caribbean Versico. I've kept the Vicularia species. This is what works for me. Chime in, let people know so that they can get that valuable information. So that will do it for this one. For me, I need to get a drink because my voice is killing me because I've been talking for over an hour. As always, you can find me on Tom's Big Spiders. Dot com. You can find me on Thomas Big Spiders on YouTube. Last video featured my species Valhalla. We did a rehousing. I also talked about the Crapella or Crapels. Crapels? Crapels. It has the word crap in it. I literally bought these because it had the word crap and I thought it was a freaking 12-year-old. I thought it was funny, but they're great enclosures. So I did a little review of that. So people looking for a good arboreal or even a fossorial closure, glass enclosure, check them out. And I just talked to a buddy of mine. Oh, I wish I could remember who said it. Somebody that's in my YouTube, follows my YouTube channel, said that you can find them on sale a lot for like 40 bucks, which would be a great deal. So if you want to check those out, go over there. That'll do it for this one, guys. As always, stay safe. We'll catch you all next time.